It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We need to recognize that local communities are deeply affected by the things that happen on the public lands in their county, but these are also national resources. So we need to find a balancing act between the interests of fish and birds and the interests of the entire nation and the interests of local communities. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Before we start, just want to put in a plug for downloading the show on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please rate us. And Miranda Schaefer, our producer, has put together a really easy guide on how to download the show and rate and review us. It's on our website at howdowefixit.me. Jim, in some western states, the federal government owns more than 50% of the land. And we've seen members of a heavily armed anti-government militia seize buildings and force the shutdown of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in the high desert of eastern Oregon. Yeah, they're demanding a complete change in federal land policies. Fortunately, not too many people are supporting the the tactics of this extremist group, but a lot of people are questioning whether it's time to reassess our policy of how we manage federal lands. So on our show today, we're going to look at the balance between nature and ranchers, the public and private interests involved in this dispute, and the tensions over land. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And in the studio, our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Our guest is Nancy Langston, professor of environmental history at the Michigan Technological University. Nancy's the author of Where Land and Water Meet a Western Landscape Transformed. Okay, so describe the area first that we're talking about, the Malheur uh, Wildlife Refuge. Well, it's just under 188,000 acres of wetland along the Pacific where millions and millions and millions of migratory birds pass each year as they move from South America up to the Arctic. Yeah, in a recent article in the New York Times, you said there are 25 million birds a year that visit this place, but few humans. Not every year. It's not always 25 million birds a year because nature varies a lot from year to year, but it's absolutely critical habitat. So the militia says that the federal government should just turn over the refuge and other lands in the West for local control. Do they have a point? 
Um, They're much poorer than urban communities. Rural communities in the West are poor. And there's a lot of concern that has something to do with the fact that just about 52% of the land in Western states is owned by the federal government rather than by private interests or local communities. Yeah, that seems completely out of balance. Explain the background of that. Well, it first came about because the federal government violently dispossessed many of the Indian nations from their lands. And in the Malheur refuge, it was the Paiute nation. So there was a community of people violently dispossessed from the land, but it was the Paiute tribe, not the ranchers or the homesteaders. Miranda Schaefer. Can you just explain what actually happened and the characters involved in the standoff? Oh, in the standoff today with the Hammonds or in the standoff 100 years ago? Oh. <laughs> Sorry, you're asking <laughs> no, a historian. No, no, well, we don't have that much time. But. <laughs> the head of this informal militia movement, Ammon Bundy, came in arguing that the Hammonds, a ranching family, had been terribly mistreated by being sent back to prison to serve a full five-year term. The Hammonds were convicted of arson on public lands that endangered the lives of quite a few people. And they served a short prison sentence. They served a very short prison sentence, and then it went back to the courts. And I'm not a legal scholar. What I do know is that really sparked a lot of anger about government overreach in this community. And it essentially gave the Bundys an excuse to come in with their model. Are they locals? No, not at all. They're from Nevada. They have nothing to do with this region. And I don't think there are very many local ranchers or anybody else in the community who approves of their methods. A lot of these conflicts come down to ranchers wanting to be able to run their cattle on federal land. They have a long, long history of doing so. And my sense is they tend to think that this is the way the world ought to work. We ought to be able to run our cattle. As as an environmentalist, I think also think you need to recognize those cattle have done a lot of damage to the ecosystems in the West. And then there's a limit to how many head of cattle a given uh, portion, especially these very, um, in these desert lands, to how much cattle these regions can support. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after the Indians were pushed off their lands in the 1870s, that was the era when private ranchers, big, big corporations from California, moved up and started trying to graze first cattle, then sheep, then pigs on these open rangelands in the West. And it was an interesting experiment in corporate control of big landscapes, and it didn't work very well. Most of the ranchers went out of business. There was incredible tensions between ranchers and settlers and everybody else. And the land was terribly overgrazed. And so at the turn of the century, much of that land went to the federal government. And much of the land that's now public lands in the West had always been owned by the feds. And the feds tried to give it to the states. They tried to revert it to more local communities. And states and local communities and private interests just didn't want it because they were getting a really good deal from the feds. Give us an example of how the the land became overgrazed or poverty set in as a result of this imbalance. Well, there was so much competition between private interests, between the really large cattle barons, between the poor settlers who wanted some place to irrigate, over who should have access to the water. And nobody could really agree who had rights to those lands. 
And so that set up a situation where everybody rushed in to graze as many cattle or sheep as they could. And it was really chaos. It was a terribly violent era. And it was not a great example of good grazing that either sustained the people or sustained the wildlife or the grass. Right. There's this famous concept I'm sure you're well aware of in, in uh, economics, the tragedy of the commons, the idea that if if people are able to extract a resource, say your community has a paddock of grass in the middle, everyone's allowed to graze their cattle, it's not in anyone's individual interest not to put as many cattle on there as they can, even if over time all the grass is going to get eaten up and it's just going to be a, a mud pond. And it seems to me that the notion of being able to graze your cattle on federal land without having to own it or, or maintain it, it raises a similar tragedy to the commons kind of issue. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's been a lot of work by people to look at when that happens and when it doesn't happen. And I think the answer all depends on the community, on the resource, on who wants access to that land. Because there are lots of situations where local communities do a great job of managing commons resources. And there are lots of examples where partnerships between federal land managers and local communities do an excellent job of managing for the common good. Why does the federal government have to own so much of this land? Can't it be reverted now to the states? I know that you said that in the past, the states didn't want it, local communities didn't want it. But Mm -hmm. what's the situation today? Well, the situation today is interesting because you've probably heard of the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 1970s and then the Wise Use Movement in the 1980s. So not that long ago, there was a big push to privatize these public lands or else to transfer them to state or county ownership. But both times that was blocked and it was blocked by miners, by loggers, by ranchers who recognized that when the land was in federal ownership, they were getting a really good deal because our taxpayers essentially pay to manage that land really well. And so it wasn't federal interest that blocked that transfer. It was often local interests. Now, if I were a rancher and I and I had to pay for grazing, would I get any discount or anything like that? Oh, yes, you get a tremendous discount. What, what percentage? Um, on Bureau of Land Management land, you're typically paying about $2 per animal unit month. So that's the amount of grazing necessary to sustain a cow and her calf. It's anywhere from 12 to $15 on private land. It's $11 on Fish and Wildlife Service land. I can't right off the top of my head yep. say what kind but, of discount that is. A but the amount is interesting. Discount. I mean, $2 doesn't sound like very much money to me. No, it's not. And in fact, it's the lowest since the Taylor Grazing Act in 1934. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For an inflation adjusted, it's dropped by 50% since the 80s and 90s when it was on average about $4. But they are managed at a loss for the federal government, in part to help infuse funds into these poorer rural communities. We tend to assume that if you want to protect something, the federal government's the best way to protect it. But I, I saw a study that in a lot of national forests, there are areas that get logged because, you know, the forest managers have incentives to encourage certain kinds of use. So they'll actually build the roads for the loggers to drive on and create more logging than if this land was privately held, where certain areas would not even be economical to log. Well, right now, the debate is opening up again. And I think it's an important debate for us to have as a national community. I think there are certain places where federal ownership is really essential, because it's really hard for private interests or for the state to make the kind of profits off of IBIS or other kinds of <laughs> nesting water birds that would make it possible for them to manage that land productively. But in places where there are other values that are primary, such as grazing, you know, I think it's an important question. Does the state do a better job? Does the county do a better job? The standoff resulted in a great deal of disruption to the local community, including for a while the schools being closed. Is there some local support for the militia or some of what they're talking about? There is very, very little local support for the militia's tactics for this kind of violent anarchy. There is, however, local support for having a much bigger conversation about who should be involved in decisions about these lands in the West. And what I think is so interesting is for at least 15 years this conversation has been going on. Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is really the poster child today, not for bad federal land management by a few elites who ignore everybody else, but instead for a really important community-based collaborative process to bring together scientists, public land agencies, tribes, ranchers, county commissioners, environmentalists, to figure out how are we going to work together to make something better. Now, before we get into the solutions, it seems that there has been an escalation of some concerns over how some of the federal lands are being managed. What's been going on? Yeah, you know, in the 60s and 70s, logging on park service lands was at an all-time high. Grazing on the wildlife refuges and Bureau of Land Management lands was incredibly high. And that was partly because the federal agencies wanted to support local communities and not impoverish them. All that changed in the 1970s when under the Republican president, Richard Nixon, we passed a series of national environmental laws, such as the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, that recognize that other things matter besides just making a profit. And that these public lands in particular have incredibly bigger values than just private profit. So there was a rise in environmental regulations in the 70s and 80s, especially. Absolutely. Rise in environmental regulations, um, a lot of 
federal agencies becoming much bigger and having much more power. Starting in the late 1980s and in the 1990s, logging on public lands in the West shut down by up to 80%, and that hurt a lot of timber-dependent communities. Grazing allotments also began to decline, and that also hurt local communities. Now, you feel that there is a better way. I mean, you're, you're an advocate for a collaborative approach to managing these lands. Um, how, do, how, do, how does that work? Do you have some examples of places where this has been effective? Yes, I think it's really important that the tribes, that the ranchers, that the loggers... And, of course, the environmental groups are part of this process. But it's always tricky because we need to recognize that local communities are deeply affected by the things that happen on the public lands in their county. But these are also national resources. So we need to find a balancing act between the interests of fish and birds and the interests of the entire nation and the interests of local communities. But it is the local communities that live there. So... Are there examples of where their wishes or their needs are not being fully taken into account by officials who come in from the outside? There were lots and lots of examples in the 1970s, 1980s, the early 1990s. Um, but I think things have really changed a lot in the past 15 years. There have been enormous efforts, especially in Oregon, to actually create collaborative approaches to managing public lands. At Malheur, for example, after I think eight years of really hard work, the community and the agencies put together a conservation plan that really, really involves tribes, environmentalists, ranchers, and farmers to find common ground on how to make sure management benefits wildlife, habitat, and also local communities. How does that work, though? I mean, ultimately, who makes the decision? I mean, you could have lots of different focus groups. You could have many people sitting around a table, but then you could also have a federal government official saying, okay, I've heard the different points of view. This is what we're going to do. Sure. And that's what the old-fashioned stakeholder processes used to look like, um, you know, right after 1976, when all these federal agencies were forced by law to involve local community stakeholders. And often it was frustrating because people would come, they'd listen to the federal agents, tell them what was going to happen. At the time, it was mostly, we're going to log a whole lot. They would express their concerns and the feds would say, well, thank you very much. We're going to do what we've decided to do. So that's not collaboration. That's a kind of one-way information sharing. But real collaboration means that all the different sides have to give something up in order to come to a greater good. And so, for example, what happened with one of these plants up on Steens Mountain, just outside the refuge, was that in return for uh, ranchers agreeing to retire grazing from some of the creeks, in exchange, they got 30-year leases and they got the right to decide how best to manage their land for both wildlife for habitat, for fish, and for profit. So they still have to abide by the law, but they get all sorts of assurances that they are the ones who get to make the decisions. And the government is just going to come in and measure outcomes and make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing, but it's not going to tell them how to do that. They get to innovate and figure out how best to do that. So, uh, so I'm getting the sense that you feel the only way this can really work is if these different groups, ranchers, environmentalists, government officials, local people, trust each other. 
Right. And figuring out how to trust each other is a complicated process. It doesn't mean we all sit together and have a big group hug and say, oh, we never have any conflicts. You have to figure out how to recognize you have differences, how to recognize that conflicts are real. But you also have to agree to certain ground rules. The federal government, though, is very far away. It's based in Washington, D.C. And I'm wondering whether there's any intelligent way of taking some of the lands, maybe even as an experiment, and giving them local control or state control or even private control rather than than the government. I'm just wondering whether there are different models that can be tried. It seems as if there's a, a sense that the federal government has to own the majority of, of lands in these western states. And I'm just wondering whether that really is a realistic option. Um, I I actually think that's, a, that's an interesting experiment to try. Many of my environmentalist friends would not be happy to have me say this. But I think there's certainly lots of places where it would be really interesting to transfer them to other kinds of ownership. I would in particular like to see a transfer to tribal ownership of much of federal or of certain federal lands. And in many cases, they've done extraordinary jobs of doing community-based conservation that helps give them a sustainable economic future and also restores habitat. Why not just sell big chunks of land to private owners? Wouldn't they have a long-term incentive in preserving the land more if they really own it instead of just being given permission to, to extract resources from it? Good question. And in fact, that was tried uh, during the Sagebrush Rebellion. There were a lot of economists who were really pushing President Reagan to privatize much of the public lands. And they tried really hard. And essentially, nobody wanted to buy it because it's really, really hard to make a profit on arid rangelands. And with the Taylor Grazing Act in 1934 and 1935, the feds did their best to transfer this land out of federal ownership. So, uh, many economists really question whether we should be spending such a huge infusion of federal tax dollars into managing these dry rangelands. But the simple answer is the states and private interests have not been willing to buy them when that's been tried in the past. It's been blocked not by environmentalists so much, but by people simply not wanting to buy them. What if we just gave it away? Ah! (laughs) Sorry, you probably (laughs) want to cut out my streak of laughter. (laughs) Um, Sure. If we want to give it away to the previous owners, to the tribes, that would be an interesting experiment. And I am all for experiments. I did my PhD in ecology. I love experiments. Um, Nancy, the question I wanted to ask was, how, how did you get into this? Oh, you know, I was an ecologist. I was doing my PhD research in Zimbabwe along the Zambezi River, working on carmine bee eaters, these extraordinarily spectacular Um, migratory bird. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And President Mugabe was tearing the country apart. I had to have an armed guard at all times because small farmers were rushing on to what was then a national park. And there was all sorts of poaching of rhino in particular. And essentially, my guards had the rule to shoot any other black African on site. And here I was, a little ecologist, going, I'm going to study the birds. All we need is more science. And I had never heard of community-based conservation or the kind of violence that's often been used to sustain conservation lands. And so when I was there, I started asking broader questions about 
why do so many of these protected areas really hurt local communities rather than benefit them? I couldn't really get my permits to go back for my final year of research, so I decided to work on an equally controversial topic much closer to home, and that was the old growth battles at times on public lands in the West. And I really fell in love with the inland West, fell in love with um, these wildlife refuges and these extraordinary places of contrast where water is so profuse in a desert. Well, I have just one more question, not necessarily for, for, for broadcast. What's your take on the work of Wallace Stegner? Oh, Wallace Stegner is one of my heroes. Yeah, and I started too. reading yeah, Wallace Stegner well. when I was yeah. actually in Zimbabwe. Wow. And I thought, I don't want to be just a scientist. I want to be the next Wallace Stegner. I think that's a great way to end. Nancy Langston, professor of environmental history at Michigan Tech. Michigan Tech rather than Michigan Technological University? Is that what Michigan Tech is what everybody says. Okay. And you're also the author of Where Land and Water Meet, A Western Landscape Transform. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Jim, I think Nancy Langston's core message is the need for collaboration between different interests. And so often we talk about these issues as either or, left versus right, government versus private. And what's very clear about this and many other issues as well is there's more than two sides to every issue. Absolutely. And I think that the collaborative examples from some of these areas do have promise. But as someone who in general supports free market solutions to problems, when the federal government controls a resource, in a sense, that demands a collaboration where through a process that ultimately in the end does have to be political. Somebody's got to decide which rancher loses money and which one makes money. You could collaborate all you want, and still, as she acknowledged, somebody's interests are going to get hurt. It's probably the best approach to the system we have now. But the roots of a lot of this um, this anger and, and stress do have to come, come down to the federal ownership of the land. Now, that said, that doesn't mean I, I'm in favor. I mean, I ask these questions. Well, I'm struck by two things about this conversation. One is it does seem as if the federal government is doing a better job now in many areas than it was 30, 40 years ago. But then also I'm struck by the rise of, and perhaps this is a generational thing, of the me generation, of the fact that everybody feels that they have individual rights and that we've seen a falling away of broad-based institutions and a rise of, of... Well, wait, don't we have individual rights? Well, let, let, me, let me push this, push this back. Okay. But it seems to me that there's been a falling away of just obedience to groups, whether it be the church or the government, and a rise in people feeling that they need to take matters into their own hands and that their own opinions matter more than others do. I'm not saying that's bad, but I think that there has been a real change and that perhaps some of this movement is in response to a broader societal trend. Yeah, well, I'm a fan of individualism. Yeah, and, sure. And, and, I'm, and I'm not a fan of obedience necessarily, right. especially certainly to government but I am a fan of people obeying the law and changing the law through legal means. And I also think that there's a real contradiction behind a lot of this anger over federal lands. Yes. You have people who for generations have been granted a, a right to 
graze their cattle or, or log or do other activities on federal lands. It's a longstanding system. It doesn't make it a good system. No. And it doesn't mean that you have a perpetual right forever to extract a certain amount of, of wealth from this, this land. Now, my heart goes out to these people, these ranchers, really hardworking you know, the economics in these areas have changed. Logging communities have really suffered. But they're still getting government support. Uh, and here's the thing. You know, economic tides come in and out all the time. It shouldn't be the federal government's job to boost logging. It's very sad when those communities fade away. But but things change in the economy all the time, and people move, you know, to other areas. So they find new jobs. It's painful, yes. But it, that doesn't mean that we want to manipulate government policy or environmental policy to sustain a certain industry. So the people who are all upset... Or, or even sustain certain communities. Right. So the people who are upset, you know, I, I, I understand their anger, and I bet you they all have good examples of what they would see as capricious behavior on the part of the federal bureaucrats. That said, the underlying system is the problem, you know, of people grazing their cattle on, on public land. I don't think we can undo that or change that totally, but if you can graze your cattle for $2 a month, I know it's still hard to make money, but that's not very much money for a practice that really does do some damage to the land. And I, I understand there's a lot of ranchers work really, really hard to be environmentally responsible, but it's still it's an impact, just like overfishing or any other activity that takes resources out of the environment. Well, it's a problem that's not going to go away, but at least we've moved the ball a little bit forward with some fixes. Yeah, and at one point she talks about how myth plays a big part of this, our myth of the West, our myth of tradition. And I think one of the hard things for everyone, whether you're conservative or liberal, is understanding that sometimes things change. You remember in England in the 70s and in the 80s, there was a huge sadness over the fact that Maggie Thatcher was closing down these uneconomical coal mines. You right, were there. Right. I, I was uh, living there. Yeah, yes. and there was huge pain around this because yeah. communities depended on this money. But these mines were losing money. The government was subsidizing them. And now in retrospect, we look back and say, well, it's probably good that England got off of this crappy soft coal that put tons of pollution in the air. So in retrospect, it was probably good that the government stopped supporting an uneconomic industry, but there was a lot of short-term pain, and you have to acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean you keep that broken system going forever. Yeah, it's a balance. It's a balance. Jim? All right, Richard. So um, uh, can, can we just circle back one other thing? Yeah, go ahead. Um, all of that said, I think these collaborative arrangements she's talking about really are smart. And, for example, trading off a piece of land and saying, okay, you have some freedom to operate in a certain way on this part of the land if you set aside these stream areas or if you protect this endangered species. In other words, not a blanket solution, but something that really allows people to continue their livelihoods and still meet the environmental or other goals. You know, for all my skepticism, I think that's a really good thing. And I think we need to see more of that. Okay, well, we're going to see less of our show because we're just about out of here. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producers, Miranda Schaefer, joining us in the studio, and our audio engineer, Denise Barberita. At Mono Lisa Studios here in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Our show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for joining. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.